want to officially let you know Christmas is not over yet, so if you've been feeling sad about that, the first day of Christmas started in the church calendar on December 25th, so you're still in the 12 days of Christmas. The 12 days of Christmas don't start 12 days before Christmas, they actually start Christmas Day. That's the partridge in the pear tree day. I'm just joking, that's like a different thing entirely from the Christmas but but the 12 days of Christmas in Christian calendar start on December 25th. So welcome, if you've been sad, you felt like Christmas came and went too quickly, uh, Phoebe was saying today we were, it's not yet time to take down the yard decorations, totally and completely agree, um, even within more storms coming the way. Um, and so we were thinking, yeah, it's, it's not time, I was like, absolutely, because it's still Christmas in our biblical calendar. In fact, uh, today is actually a feast day. It's the feast of the holy name or the remembering of eight days after Jesus was born. Then he was brought to the temple by Mary and Joseph and was dedicated to God and circumcised. And so that is the feast of the holy name or the naming of Jesus. And this past week, we also had the feast of the innocence of the holy innocence when um, Herod is warned or he's told about the People want to come and worship the wise men or magi or whoever it might be coming and wanting to worship Jesus as king of the Jews and then orders the massacre. So the remembrance of the, the Feast of the Holy Innocents was this last week. And coming up still in several more days will then be the Epiphany, which is when those three magi, we don't actually know how many there are, but a tradition, because there's three gifts. We've just decided there are three. We don't know that they're kings. There's a lot of equivocating I'd like to do, but I'm just letting you know in the church calendar, then we have the Feast of the Three Kings coming up. So if you are sad that Christmas came and went too fast, and you would still like to party on, know that you have full biblical or church calendar, not biblical calendar, but church calendar reason to do so. Yeah. That being said, we are also in the middle of a time when we're going to have this one bit of a sermon before we launch into a new series next week on Fruit of the Spirit. We're going to have one sermon today on beginnings. And we're doing this for a few reasons. One reason is because today a lot of you, over 40 of you, um, in the room and on the Zoom, have signed up to do an event called Garden to Garden, and we will read or listen to the Bible in five months. The entire thing, chronologically-ish, in some particular order. And about six days a week, we're going to do 10 plus chapters of the Bible a day. So if you signed up for that, and you've not yet completed your actual 11 chapters today, um, we'll read some of them now. And then you can just track off a little bit. Sound good? We'll get you like a little head. And then as you're falling asleep tonight, you can read your, listen to your BibleGateway.com of Genesis 1 through 11 is today's reading. Okay? Who all is doing it? Raise your hand if you signed up for garden. All right, so look around, garden to garden. And if you've not signed up, there's still time. We won't shame you at all. And we're excited to be here. And this doesn't have to be a New Year's resolution thing. It's just January 1, day 1. It works really well calendar-wise counting. So we're all good. Yeah? All right. So given all of that, let's hang out for a few moments with the concept and the idea of beginnings in the Bible. And it's actually still going to be part of our Christmas story. Our reading today comes from John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overtake it. This is John's nativity scene. 
This is John's nativity scene. Oh, it's unavailable. It's the Big Bang entry. Okay, that was John's nativity scene. John's nativity scene is the Big Bang theory. Um, John uses the Greek word logos, which is not as tame as the translation of the word. We, we hear say, in the beginning was the word, but we might say, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God, and he was with God in the beginning, and all things came into being through him. And that sounds a little bit different than just the word, yeah? The logos. And so when John uses that Greek word logos, which is not as tame as the translation of the word, in that world of Genesis, which John is echoing, God's logos is God's agency. This is a concept both in Hebrew scriptures, the Torah was known as logos as well, as well as in uh, Greco-Roman Hellenistic thought of the time. So the world, the God's logos is God's agency and God's dynamic intelligence entering the cosmos like a meteor, taking on shape as it passes from the unbounded dimension of eternity into the bounded atmosphere of earth. God's logos is God's rocket ship of self-revelation, the manifestation of God's reason and creativity in the material realm where it both brings things into being and then holds them together so they don't fly apart. In John's nativity scene, there's no Bethlehem. There's no manger. There's no shepherds. John reminds us that the Logos is eternally born. It's been coming into the world forever, spoken by a God, whom no one has ever seen to make God's purpose known on earth. His story isn't set in the time of King Herod in a town six miles south of Jerusalem. It's set in the cosmos where the Logos has no beginning or end. What kind of costume can you put on that? It's hard to use John's nativity scene, John's birth narrative of Jesus in our Christmas pageant scenario, right? A little bit difficult. Uh, One year, my sister was helping at our home church uh, put together a Christmas pageant. She had assigned all the kids different roles, and one of the parents called very concerned later on, and the kid was very excited about their role because they were going to be the leopard in the Christmas pageant. And my sister had to break the news that, no, indeed, it was shepherd, not leopard, and the kid was very sad. He could not growl for a long time. That being said, I don't know how we would dress up any one kid as the Big Bang, right? Any one child as the Logos that pre-existed all of creation and came into this story. But John is wanting to talk about beginnings. John's reaching all the way back to Genesis and before to let us know who Jesus is and how Jesus has entered into this world. He's telling us this isn't just about Herod. This isn't just about Rome. This isn't just about coming up against the powers of the time. This Jesus is preexistent. This Jesus has been there from the beginning. This Jesus is God, is the God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, preexistent before all time. This Jesus, yes, is born, but doesn't really have a birthday. This Jesus has always existed. We used to tell the kids in children's ministry, Jesus is God in a bod, God in human form, showing up and starting to speak into our existence. And so that's how John begins things. Now, in our society, we like to talk about beginnings, too. And when we talk about beginnings, we often do so around this time of the year. Why do we do that? 
Why do we have this big, huge celebration when we go from December 31 to January 1? And why do we do it at midnight? And why is it so exciting to watch that ridiculous, very heavy crystal ball drop three hours before our own New Year here on the West Coast? Why, why is it so fantastic as we go all around and brave the cold? And I don't know, maybe some of you are those people who think, I would just love to be in Times Square on New Year's Eve. And others of you think, dear God, no, please make me never, ever have to go and stand amongst all of those people to watch the ball drop and then in that anticlimactic moment either be pressured to kiss the person next to me or be really sad that I'm not kissing the person next to me or just feel now that I'm trapped here for three hours while the crowd control gets me back out of this mess and I don't think it was worth it and could I have just watched it on TV three hours early from my own time zone and go to bed at nine. So all of those things come together with January 1. Now in our biblical calendar, we actually don't have a concept of January 1 being our new year. Our whole concept of having a new year starting just after midnight or halfway through the night is completely foreign to the construct of days and celebrations in the Bible because of Genesis 1, which John is echoing. It was evening, it was morning the first day. Days are counted by sunset not midnight and not sunrise. They are counted at evening and then morning, and that's day one. And so if we were looking at our biblical calendar, our biblical calendar actually has one new year. Now, Jewish tradition has two New Year's, but there's only one in our Bible. Rosh Hashanah is not mentioned in the Bible. That means head of the year. It occurs 10 days before Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. It's in the fall, and it coincides with, in your Bible, is called the Feast of Trumpets. But the biblical year actually changes over on Nisan 1, the first of Nisan, which is two weeks prior to Passover, the Festival of Freedom. So as Jesus followers, your New Year's Day has not happened yet. Your New Year's Day is in the spring, during the month that we celebrate Jesus' resurrection. So if your New Year's Day yesterday or New Year's Eve and the New Year's Day has just been terrible, don't worry, you get a do-over in just a couple months. You'll be all set by the time we approach the spring calendar. Now, the holidays in the biblical time period followed a cycle or a circle, a season, a rotation, really following around harvest time. So the spring harvest was the barley harvest, and then 10 weeks, uh, 40 days, 50 days later, we have Shavuot, the festival of weeks, which was the wheat harvest, and then we have summer fruits, and then in the fall, we have the feast of ingathering, and so that's why the calendar forms the way that it does. Nothing to do with January 1st. What are you guys thinking? Why are we stuck here January 1? Well, the reason we're stuck with January 1, my goodness, that happened, is because of this guy. Janus is a Roman god of beginnings, endings, transitions, doorways, gates, passages, and time. And Janus presided over the beginning and ending of conflict, and hence war and peace. And you can see in almost every depiction of Janus, we have a two-headed or two sides of Janus looking forward and looking back. And that is how we got January 1st, named after this Roman god. And that's why we talk about it as the beginning beginning and the end of a new year, of a year because of this Roman God who marks beginnings and endings. That's what you all were doing last night and today. Um, if you had like a nice New Year's Day brunch, you were hanging out with the Roman God Janus. And I know now you'll all realize that you've broken at least one resolution, which was to not idol worship this year. So good, <laughs> good job. Um, in any event, I kind of like this idea. I like the idea of looking forward and looking back at the same time. 
Uh, years and years ago, Kevin actually did a really lovely, maybe he'll take you all outside and do it again, act surprised when it happens, uh, lovely illustration of one aspect of what the Bible does and one aspect of what we are asked to do as we talk even about beginnings is similar to a swing, that we are swinging forward into the future, but also kicking back into the past. And that swing brings connected the tension between ancient and future, between looking forward and looking back. And I think I see that a little bit echoed in that Roman concept with Janus and that idea of the new year turning in this dark time of the year when the days are short and we're longing for things to start moving towards days being longer again. Now, when we celebrate that god Janus and we have this wonderful Roman calendar and we looked towards fantastic celebrations that I don't even know have happened last night due to the rain in San Francisco. Did they happen? Oh, you were there? Oh, good. You had a really good Janus celebration last night. Good job. Okay. So with all of that, then we have a lot of expectation, don't we, when we see all of these celebrations to just be happy, happy, joy, joy all the time. But for a lot of us, New Year's feels more like this, even actually in reality, in physical reality, or just emotionally. And we feel like it's not been happy, happy, joy, joy. It felt heavy and fraught and laden with all sorts of expectations. And we've got all these new journals we've started this morning that we're pretty sure are going to stop by the 5th. Maybe we'll make it all the way to King's Day on the 6th. Who knows? New year, fresh start, new me. Here we go. It's going to be great. And in the middle of all of that, we have expectations, disappointments, Grief, loss, there's been additions this year. There have been subtractions this year. There's been hope, joy, gladness. We're exhausted. This may be because of all of the good and all of the hard. We've been told that if you buy this thing for the last month and a half, this will make you happy or make the people love you or will be wonderful. And so you've been marketed to death. But all of a sudden, after Christmas until now, now you're being marketed to all you need is the new you. You just need a new body. You just need to exercise more. You just need to sleep better. Find all of the things that you need to do. Try anything. Feel guilty that you aren't content. Feel guilty that you are. Everything that you're doing is wrong and you should be doing everything differently. And this is the marketing message that starts to come as we are in the midst of the chaos. And even as I was watching last night at 8.55, the Times Square drop, I was thinking about how different it looks now than it did growing up. How when I was growing up, even Times Square looked a little bit different than it does now. All I can see now are like Toshiba and Planet Fitness and like it just feels like I'm actually in the middle of the movie WALL-E with all of the junk that the earth has accumulated and then as the confetti dropped Kevin's response was think of the mess <laughs> just like all of the things that we cleaned up and all the mass marketing and commercialization and chaos of it all trying to grab hold of the latest and the greatest and the best and it can feel exhausting but as the prophet Bono has told us all is quiet on New Year's Day a world in white gets underway and nothing changes on New Year's Day, right? There's nothing actually different from yesterday than today other than the way in which we write our checks if you wrote checks at all. So if uh, you're a kid at school and you have to write your name on a paper and date something, that's what's changed. It's changed from 22 to 23. And we are stuck in the midst of feeling like everything should be different. But having the, new, the actual knowledge that nothing has changed. Nothing's changed, has it, since last night at midnight till today. Nothing's changed. 
Things are still as they were. Um, Nothing big has shifted. But the Bible is full of beginnings and re-beginnings and creation and recreation. And this is the story that John is telling us right at the beginning of John chapter 1. That in Jesus and in the arrival of Christ, everything has changed. That it's different now than it was before. And he reaches all the way back into that Genesis story of Genesis 1, 1 through 5. And here's where if you're in garden to garden, you're going to be able to just cross off the first five verses, folks. You're ready. You only have 11 and three quarters chapters left to go. 10 and three quarters. Okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was complete chaos and darkness covered the face of the deep while the wind from God swept over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. This is how Genesis starts. This is how our Bible starts. And it's how John starts his own Christmas story, his own Jesus nativity story, not with Bethlehem and not with Herod and not with Mary and Joseph, not with those shepherds. He starts with, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and was with God in the beginning and through him all things were made. And that's the story that starts to get told. And if you were a hearer then, and I pray if you're a hearer now of those words, that you realize that in this still, yes, still Christmas season, that yes, everything has changed with the arrival of Christ into our world. That's the new beginning. That's the new thing John is shouting. It's all shifted and changed. Something has changed change something different is occurring and it has nothing to do with personal goals or individual aims or your own personal experience in this world the new year celebrations of the biblical calendar had nothing to do with you individually or me individually being more content more happy more joyful or having to manage the grief in the midst of pain and all has nothing to do with that has to do with a communal experience of God in Christ. God in human form coming to dwell with us, to dwell amongst us, to say, it is not good that you are alone. I want to be with you. And this is the new beginning again. Another beginning, another recreation. There's a wonderful Jewish scholar, um, Kushner, who says that Genesis was not written to tell us that it happened. Genesis was written to tell us that it happens. That God is still in the business of recreating and bringing about new life in this world. Now many of us, when we think about beginnings, when we think even about this time of year, when we think about how it all works together, when we think about the very first thing that God created, God creates light simply by speaking, we're very quick to say, oh, these are the things, this is how we can find good in the world. We find good through light. 
And oftentimes when we're walking through our own paths, we think that the things that are very difficult and hard, those dark nights of the soul, are the times absent from God, and that the times when there is bright light and happy, happy, joy, joy, are the times when we are closer to God. But Genesis actually tells a different story. If we back up again, God creates the heavens and the earth. The earth was complete chaos. Darkness covered the face of the deep, and a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. God is in the darkness. God hovers over it and is in it, is at work in it. There's a beautiful new children's book out published by my homies over at the ELCA, the Lutheran Church of America. I love this book. If you don't have it, you should go and get it. It's called God's Holy Darkness. And it tries to talk about this dichotomy that we have created in a bit of our language, and particularly from a perception and an an effort for anti-racism efforts. So they've written this beautiful book. You can see the presence of God. This image is supposed to show Passover as God's spirit hovers and passes over the homes of the Israelites in Egypt. And it starts like this. Darkness and blackness and night are too often compared to lightness and whiteness and day and found deficient. But let us name the beauty and goodness and holiness of darkness and blackness and night. And as it continues on then, the authors find story through story from garden to garden throughout our text. It says God uses darkness and blackness and night to show love for the world. Creation began in the dark. In the beginning, darkness covered the face of the deep and God poured out love and brought all things into being. Creation is God's work done in holy darkness. And then the authors continue to talk about all of the different ways in which God starts to show up and move in the times when it is dark. When Abraham is doubting God's promises, God says, come out and look at the night sky. When Jacob is wrestling all night with God, he's changed forever and becomes Israel in the night time. When Solomon dedicates the temple of God, it is a dark cloud that comes and rests in that space that causes people to know the presence of God is there. And then the authors go on to how Samuel hears God's voice in the night, how the angels appear to the shepherds in the dark, how the disciples gather with Jesus on that Passover night, how Jesus is praying in the night, how the sky grows dark as he is on the cross how it is in the depths and the darkness of the tomb that he is resurrected. Many of us perceive our times of challenge or difficulty or loss or absence of bright light as times absent from God. And I'm here to tell you that if you're in any of those seasons, apparently that is when God draws quite close. And I'll let you read garden to garden and find all the times and make all the connections when God draws so close to us in the midst of that beautiful, creative, holy darkness. There's a beautiful book out right now by Ross Gay called Inciting Joy. I don't know if any of you have come across it. It's a collection of essays. And, um, and he asked this question, what happens if joy is not separate from pain? What if joy and pain are fundamentally tangled up with one another? 
Or even more to the point, what if joy is not only entangled with pain or suffering or sorrow, but is also what emerges from how we care for each other through those things? And what if joy, instead of refuge or relief from heartbreak, is what effloresces from us as we help each other carry our heartbreaks? What if joy and sorrow have to be hand in hand? What if darkness and light must go hand in hand? What if beginnings and endings must be united in order to be fully understood? The author continues and says, rather than quarantining ourselves or running from sorrow, rather than warring with sorrow, we lay down our swords and invite sorrow in and we make sorrow some tea. And this is the brilliance of this movie, is it not? When Joy is sitting there and she's realizing for the very first time that all of the things that she's carried with her and tried to protect, all the highs, all the joys, how she'd circled a little circle for sadness and said, sadness stay here, and sort of like I bind and rebuke sadness and make sadness stay only in one place, stay only here. What if in all of her efforts to keep all of it, she can't get out... join we're stuck down here we're forgotten we need to play tag and stuff but everything's different now since we move positive and happy to avoid the pain and the hurt of the sadness. She just can't carry it anymore. She's exhausted. Do you remember how she used to stick her tongue out when she was coloring?
It was the day the Prairie Dogs lost the big playoff game. Marley missed the winning shot. She felt awful. She wanted to quit. in our lives that often brings about the times of greatest joy and comfort. This is what Joy realizes in the movie, that, that the beautiful, wonderful memories that she's holding on to and trying to protect and keep pristine and beautiful and perfect are so valuable because sadness was there too. Our joys and sorrows are not separate things like two sides of a coin, but they're more like a piece of beautifully woven cloth each thread a part of the unseparated whole. They aren't things to get over or avoid. Our past and future experiences are part of us. And in Christ, they're welcomed guests at the table. This is what I think we see when we see the creation story being told over and over again. And the recreation stories and the encounters with God being told over and over again. It is often in those moments where we have no idea where God is that we discover God being present in that after of it. Has that ever happened to you? Where in the moment you're thinking, where could God possibly be? But it's in the after and looking back at the moment, much like Moses did where he's standing and he's shepherding God's, shepherding the flock and then all of a sudden comes upon a bush that is on fire, but it's not being consumed. And then he realizes that the place that he is standing is holy ground and takes off his sandals. Or after Jacob wrestles with God at Bethel, or has the dream, actually, of Jacob's ladder at Bethel in Genesis. And he says, after he wakes up, oh, surely God is in this place and I did not know it. That it's in the afters of these moments where we can start to see the intersections of God's presence, even in times of great sorrow, as well as in times of great joy. In my Christian life and experience, I've often been taught to um, just be happy. Anybody else? Yeah, just be happy. It's okay. We're all going to be happy. Oh, did something really bad happen to you? But praise the Lord, like God's... God's good all the time, all the time God's good. Now, I love what Pastor Mark says, but sometimes you're just like, but I'm, but I'm also sad. And God can be good in the sad. And a lot of times I've been taught, hey, if you're feeling just sadness and difficulty or frustration or depression or any of the things that often come up for all of us at these big, high-intensity, high-expectation holidays around this time of the year, that that is just on you. You should just, we, I, should just stiff up her lip, pull up, you know, your bootstraps, get it together, count your blessings, be happy, or, wow, how about this, the devil must really have a hold on you, let us bind that, and if you just prayed really hard, you could just cast that out. 
Well, first of all, I'm here to tell you it's okay to have Jesus and a therapist. Both are okay all the time. They should be together. I hear, I hear a woo-woo from the therapy crowd out there. Yay, good job. Okay, I very happily, happily love to go to therapy. Feel free to pay my bills anytime. And so all of that is okay. And you don't have to bind it and cast it out and call it evil or ugly. You can instead invite it to the table. That's going to sound crazy. Are you ready? Years ago, I went through a, uh, about eight years ago, actually, a spiritual direction practice. And when I was learning that practice and doing the certification for becoming a spiritual director, one of the things that they had us do was had us practice a compassionate response for the difficult other in our lives and practice compassionate response and exercises for difficult moments or deep moments of wounding. And so we all sat in a room, and as we sat in this room at the Mercy Center, um, and we sat down, they said, okay, can you close your eyes and picture a room, any kind of room? So I pictured a nice kind of study, like sort of leather vegan couches and um, nice, you know, wonderful books on the wall and a sort of beautiful, warm fireplace, not too hot, not too cold, just comfortable and lovely. And then they started to ask us to invite the difficulties into the space. And so as we did that, you know, they were asking the question, what what kind of creature is coming up for you? What does it look like? How old is it? Does it have a gender? Does it have a form? What is it? And for me, the thing that showed up was a giant sinkhole. Just, you know, like the ones you see on the news, where it's like you should stand back because your house, car, slash all of the things will fall in. And that giant sinkhole just showed up right there in the front. And then all of a sudden, I I wasn't in that lovely, warm room anymore. In my mind's eye, I was sitting at my home here in Mountain View, and the giant sinkhole is right in front of my house. And I had put up around this giant sinkhole of grief and loss and pain, construction cones, flashing lights, the, you know, like the, are the sawhorses where it's like got that, like just, and, and lots, it was on the news, there were like journalists there, everyone stay away from the sinkhole, this is crazy. And I would just tell people, you should just stay away from this giant sinkhole, please don't talk to me about the sinkhole, just walk around it and pretend it's not here, because if you talk to me about the sinkhole, I will start to cry. Because it's too big, it's so huge, and I don't know what to do with it. And what I'd been taught my whole life was pretend like the sinkhole's not there. Say, just what sinkhole? I don't see a sinkhole. Just hope nobody falls in. And if anybody starts to talk to you about the sinkhole, run away, shut it down, or just bind it and cast it out in the name of Jesus. You could say, in the name of Jesus, sinkhole, I bind you and I cast you out. And every time I would do any of that, I'm totally going to trip over these like lovely instruments. Anytime I would do any of that, the sinkhole just got bigger and deeper and more angry, it would not calm down. And so the next step in this exercise was then to say, ask Jesus to come and sit with the difficult other or this wound or what it might be. So in my mind's eye praying, I invited Jesus to come and sit with the sinkhole. And Jesus brought a really cozy blanket, throw blanket from that wonderful roaring fire lounge and just hugged the sinkhole. 
told the sinkhole it was okay, that it was there. It told the sinkhole that it was, it was there for a reason, that there was some good in the sinkhole, that the sinkhole had some purpose in my life. And guess what? The sinkhole calmed down. If you come to my house, it's still there. You should step around it. But it's not a 10 anymore. It's like a 2. And it gets to stay there. It's part of the fabric of my story. And it's welcomed in Christ. It sits around my table with all of my other good stories too. With joy and hope and gladness and celebrations and more sinkholes and tiny potholes and weird little creatures that pop up when I interact with my parents, right? All of those things all sit at this table, and in Christ, they are radically welcomed. Because God is the God of all. And Jesus loves all and welcomes all. Beginnings, new beginnings, creation, recreation, this is the process that we go through constantly, not just January 1 or Nissan 1, if you're keeping the biblical calendar or whatever it might be. These are the things that we go through in this life as we walk with Christ. And creation and recreation and beginnings and endings and God's creative working power in both the darkness and in the light These are the processes of waking up. This is the process of becoming awakened and aware of Christ's work in your life and in mine. When we acknowledge everybody at the table, everybody welcomed in, everybody radically loved and welcomed, everything radically loved and welcomed, when we look around that table and we say, oh, I have awakened to the fact that anxiety is here. Fear is here. Sadness is here. So is joy. So is hope. So is love. And it all gets to be there at the table. And when I'm awakened to all of it, I can start to see how Christ is at work in all of it and in me. In both the beginnings and the endings. If your year has been one that you just, the best blessings in your life came and you're super excited and it's fantastic, wonderful. You've hopefully lived long enough to know that that doesn't happen every year. And if this year has been one that you wish you could just erase, you look back in the photo album of your life and you just like to grab those pages and just rip them out. That's okay too. Jesus is in both. And Jesus loves both and can be welcoming of both. In the church tradition, we have a prayer from um, St. Ignatius. And this prayer is called the Examine Prayer. And it talks about moments of consolation and desolation. And it says, well, what are the high moments of your day or year, as the case may be, or month or a week? And what were the low moments? And it's just an invitation to ask that question. So the examined prayer goes like this. Tonight, as you lay down in the evening, take a few moments to simply breathe and rest in God's love. Your prayer might just simply be, 
Abba, I belong to you. Or maybe your prayer is, um, Jesus, help. Whatever it might be, as you sit and you breathe in the love of God's presence in that moment, once you're settled in silence, ask Jesus to be with you as you reflect on your day or month or year, if you would like. And let the very experiences come to your attention. From the mundane, from the making of breakfast and doing housework and walking, to the unusual or extraordinary moments. The moment where you had that weird, like, God-only encounter at the library. Right? Or whatever it may have been. Some of those times are really easy to find, aren't they? You know, the moments where you're trying to do something else and then God like really like with a neon sign stops you in your path and sends you to the left and then you have this incredible encounter and you can stay at the end of your day and go, wow, that was amazing. It's harder to find the moments in the dishes. But God is there too. God is very much there too. Now as you sit tonight, and you think on this, and you invite your attention towards Christ. You invite yourself to become aware that Christ is already with you and present. As you do that, start to notice which moments rise to the surface. And then stay with the moment for the rest of the prayer. And ask yourself maybe some questions. For what moment am I most grateful? For what moment am I most heartbroken? Where is the gaping sinkhole? Is it there? Where's the beautiful joy? Where's the hope? When did I give and receive the most love? And when did I feel most alive? And when did I feel the most free? And then after you've done that, invite Jesus to make you aware of how he was present with you and is still present with you in those moments. Where were you, Jesus, when I was doing the dishes? Where were you when I got that phone call telling me the news that someone was sick? Where were you when I got the call for the great new opportunity? Where were you when I laughed with a friend? Where were you when I helped somebody else? When all the sorrows and the joys were invited equally to the table and we found that joy could be found most profoundly in the moments of our sorrow. Where was Jesus in those moments and how has he shown up for us? And then I invite us all to tonight just say thank you. Thank you for making me aware of how you've been at work in my life today, this month, this week, this year. And make me aware of your presence again tomorrow. For surely God is in this place and I just did not know it. We are all that we carry. Not just the stuff we would put on a resume. We are more than the most winning cards in our hands. And we are all the things that made us weep for joy and relief. As well as grief and loss. We are all the experiences we carry that made us wiser and more tender to the sorrows of others. We are the courage we found after hope was lost, the wonder and mystery of what we sense but cannot yet see. Today is a good time. Every day is a good time to ponder 
the whole cloth of our own life and the other's lives around us. And today is a good day to ponder beginnings and endings and creation and recreation. And I'm going to end on this. And Kwame and I did not plan this at all. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 19. And here's the good news. No matter where you're at, no matter what has occurred, no matter how you failed already 15,000 times today, and I've already failed at least 15,000 times today, I was very grateful for the prophet we have over here in Ivan as I walked up today feeling frustrated with myself and, and, and angry about a few things with myself and rushed and hurried. And Ivan's first response was, welcome to the first day of a gazillion second chances. I was like, thank you. So if anyone is in Christ, here's the good news, y'all ready? You're a new creation. I'm a new creation. Everything old has passed away. Look, new things have come into being. By the way, this was not written for Janus the first, okay? This was written by St. Paul to the Corinthians who are a hot mess. This is his second letter to the hot mess. And he says, all Everything old has passed away, and look, new things have come into being. You're a new creation. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. This, by the way, is why reconciliation is one of the core values that spark this passage here. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the word to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. Amen? It all begins and ends in a garden and then lots of gardens that pop up in between. The story was not written to tell us that it happened. It, written, it was written to tell us that it happens and that creation and recreation and beginnings and re-beginnings and endings are all part of our whole cloth. And Christ loves us with all of it. And can also make us new again. And does so every time we are reminded of this truth. That we are made new again in Christ. Through the blood and the body. Through the juice and the bread. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, "This, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. And do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.